0: Visit planparenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast generating texts in seconds thanks to ai
1: common side effects include increased productivity compliments from co-workers feelings of satisfaction
0: now i can say bye-bye to writer's block
1: ask your boss if canva magic Write is right for you at canva.com designed for work
0: canva. from cafe welcome to stay tuned i'm preet barara
1: Politics is something that truly affects all of us. That's the one thing that we all get to have an opinion on. The day that I get, like, a palace floating in the clouds, you know what? That day, I'll stay in my lane.
0: That's Kumail Nanjiani. He's a comedian, the star of the hit show Silicon Valley, and the Oscar-nominated screenwriter on The Big Sick. I spoke with him live in Los Angeles about being an immigrant, getting political on Twitter, and who he'd play in a movie about the Trump administration. That's coming up. But first, let's get to your questions. First one comes in a tweet from John Paul, who says, Hey, Preet Bharara, at the end of your 11.30 show, you note the importance of Democratic congressional oversight. Can they call, for example, Whitaker before them multiple times, or just one bite at the apple? Hashtag ask Preet. So, of course, you're referring to the acting attorney general, who has generated quite a bit of controversy about his appointment and his qualifications. Matthew Whitaker. So we already know that there are Democrats who are very excited and anxious to have Matt Whitaker come and testify before them. Jerry Nadler, who will become the chair of the Judiciary Committee, and Elijah Cummings, who will become chair of the Government Oversight Committee in the House, have both said publicly they've reached out to Matt Whitaker, who has agreed to come testify sometime in January. So I think it's likely that he will be before members of Congress, both Democrats and Republicans at the prerogative of the new Democratic chairman in a matter of weeks. Whether or not he comes and testifies in the Senate remains to be seen, but it is usually the case that heads of agencies, in particular the DOJ, come before both the Senate and the House oversight committees on a fairly regular basis, maybe once or twice a year, to answer questions generally about how the department is functioning, resources, other controversial things that may have come up. Obviously, in the case of Matt Whitaker, there's a lot of concern. You can expect that the Democrats in the House will be much more interested in having Matt Whitaker come testify than the Republicans in the Senate. But I would expect him to appear before both. And I think there is some concern on the part of Republicans as well. Do they get just one bite at the apple? I mean, they actually, depending on how you're considering it, get multiple bites. We know that there are two committees in the House that want to talk to him. Maybe there will be an intel committee that wants to talk to him as well. And he'll probably be coming before the Senate too, if there's not a permanent nominee and he remains in office for any significant period of time. And then depending how those things go, they can ask for him to come back. And separate and apart from asking him to come back, usually after there's a live hearing with a witness, uh, there's an opportunity to ask written questions, which sometimes get ignored or sometimes get dodged because it's easier to do that in writing than in person. And the other thing is with respect to someone like an attorney general or an acting attorney general coming and testifying before Congress, that testimony is not narrow. In other words, Everything is on the table. I participated in a number of oversight hearings when Alberto Gonzalez was the attorney general uh, and also when Michael B. Mukasey was the attorney general. And members each have their own interests and their own you know, local issues that they want to ask about. So nothing will be off the table. And you can expect it to be very wide ranging, not just focusing on the, you know, the particular controversy of the day. And there will be an opportunity to get more information from Matt Whitaker. So I would expect him to come testify. I would expect those hearings to be incredibly interesting. And shed a lot of light, but hopefully by then we'll have a permanent nominee. But as you know, President Trump has said very clearly that he's happy with how Matt Whitaker is doing, notwithstanding the clear conflicts, notwithstanding the fact that more qualified people were passed over for the Whitaker appointment. So expect some fireworks in January.
1: Hi, Preet. My name is Jeffrey Wukalik, and I'm from Seattle, Washington. I just heard the news about Michael Flynn and Robert Mueller recommending that he receive no jail time. My question is, why can lawyers make these recommendations? Shouldn't decisions like this be up to the judge? Thanks. I'm a big fan of the show.
0: Thanks, Jeffrey, from Seattle. I was just in Seattle for a couple of days uh, in August. It's a great place. I hope to come back. So, the Flynn sentencing is going to take place on December 18th. And in advance of that sentencing, uh, as always happens, the government puts in to the court a sentencing memorandum, and then the defendant will put in his response. And all sorts of people were waiting with bated breath last night for the government submission, the special counsel submission. I saw, you know, sort of the headline breaking news on cable last night, last night being Tuesday, December 4th, you know, awaiting sentencing memorandum from the government, which is not something you typically see, but I guess everything going on now is high stakes and there's a lot of interest. So a few things before we get to your point on the government recommendation of no jail time. So the special counsel's office filed two documents. One is the government's memorandum in aid of sentencing, where it goes through the details of the plea. It goes through some of the particular characteristics of Michael Flynn, the defendant, and talks about what the proper sentence should be that they recommend. And then there's an addendum to the government's memorandum in aid of sentencing, which purports to set forth the assistance that Michael Flynn gave in connection with his cooperation with the government. So a few things. One is we learn from these documents that Michael Flynn participated in 19 sessions with the government. So I have a lot of experience doing these kinds of things, and sometimes it is true in complicated cases, a cooperating witness will come in and prepare with the government, take them through documents, particularly if they're financial documents, and meet, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine times. Nineteen times is not super rare, but it's that's a lot of times to meet. And I presume that it wasn't 20-minute sessions each. You're talking about whole mornings or whole afternoons or maybe even entire days. So there's a lot of information that Michael Flynn clearly gave to the government that you know simply from the fact that there were 19 sessions. Second, the fact that much of the addendum is redacted, as I'm sure you've seen, that's interesting to me because usually it's the case when a cooperating witness himself and the government agree that sentencing should happen, that means that their usefulness is over. That means that the information they have given has probably been used and there's been testimony about it and the person has participated in trials of other people against whom he or she has given substantial information. It's usually not the case, but it happens. It's usually not the case that some of the information about which they have testified is so sensitive uh, and relates to ongoing investigations that you go ahead and sentence the person. So I, I have an open question, and I've talked to some friends about this, about why it is that Michael Flynn is prepared to be sentenced Even though those other ongoing investigations in which he has given information are not completed, it may be that the government has no interest in calling Michael Flynn as a witness, that he's provided information or documents, and they have other leads that they can use to prove things that they want to prove without Michael Flynn, because usually you want someone like Flynn to have the hammer of a potential sentence ahead of him. When he goes and testifies in court, in fact, you know, Ann, Ann Milgram and I on the on the Cafe Insider pod just talked about this a couple of days ago with respect to Michael Cohen, who also, it appears, is participating in giving information on ongoing matters and just wants to be sentenced. And according to Michael Cohen's counsel in their sentencing memorandums, the week of the sentencing memorandum, apparently, he just wants to get on with his life. He doesn't want the delay. And if there's going to be a prison term, he wants to do it, serve it, get past it, and make the transition to being a law-abiding citizen going forward. Maybe that's part of it with Michael Flynn, but it's not clear. The other thing that's interesting is that the, I mean, we, we sort of knew this, the documents make very clear that among the things that Michael Flynn has given information about, notwithstanding the redactions, one of the things that isn't redacted is the following. The defendant, meaning Michael Flynn, has also assisted with a special counsel office investigation concerning links or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign. That goes on to say. He's done the same with respect to interactions between Russian officials and the presidential transition team. So he's given a lot of information about the very central purpose of the Mueller investigation, which people in layperson's terms call collusion. So it seems like there's a lot there. You don't meet with someone 19 times if they have not provided information that's worthwhile the first three, four, five or 18 times. So I would stay tuned for that. Now to go back to your central question, Jeffrey, about why the recommendation is no jail time. Remember what it is that Michael Flynn pled guilty to. He pled guilty to a single count of making a false statement, a materially false statement to the FBI in violation of a statute we talk about a lot on the show and everyone has become much more familiar with, 18 U.S.C. 1001. And he lied about his dealings both with Russia and also his dealings with Turkey. Now that, as we've all been saying, Lying to the government in connection with an investigation is harmful to the investigation. It undermines the rule of law, and it's a serious crime. That said, it is not the most serious crime in the world. It's more than a process crime, as Rudy Giuliani likes to call it. But it carries with it not a particularly long prison sentence, according to the sentencing guidelines. So even on its own terms, especially because Michael Flynn, like some defendants, has no prior record, which would be an aggravating circumstance and would bring up the recommended sentence, The advisory guideline range for a violation per a plea to the statute of described 1001 is zero to six months. So lots and lots of people who get prosecuted for making a false statement to the government get no jail time at all, even without substantial assistance or substantial cooperation. So it's not nuts. And by the way, just to make something clear. The prosecutors are only recommending. You're absolutely right that the judge should make the final determination about sentence, and the judge will on December 18th. But the prosecutors are in a position to make a recommendation. And I think there, there are three, three grounds. One, as I've already said, a violation of the statute, 1001, carries with it a low sentence. And in fact, the bottom of the range is zero, so meaning no prison time, and a maximum of, of six months typically. He provided really substantial assistance. They must find him credible and believable and helpful. The other thing about his cooperation that the government emphasizes more than once in the documents is that his assistance was timely. And so the the immediacy of his cooperation, according to the government itself, seemed to help his case a lot. And then finally, you know, Michael Flynn, I don't particularly care for him and the way he conducted himself during the campaign and ironically oversaw and helped to lead chance of lock her up and he was unbecoming and poor and nasty showmanship, but as the government notes... Michael Flynn's service to the country has been extraordinary. As special counsel Mueller acknowledges, Michael Flynn served in the military for over 33 years, including five years of combat duty. He led the Defense Intelligence Agency and retired as a three-star lieutenant general. And they say, and I quote, The defendant's record of military and public service distinguish him from every other person who has been charged as part of the special counsel office's investigation. So the combination of it being a statute that doesn't carry a large sentence generally the fact that he provided lots and lots of information, and then finally that he has provided extraordinary service to the country going back three decades, I think makes it not unreasonable to ask for no prison time. So people whose heads are exploding about this, I think, I think are not quite right. I mean, obviously, the, the countervailing argument is that because he was in public service for a long time and had these high positions, he should have known better. And the, the government submission makes that point also. I think on balance, given all the circumstances, nevertheless... The recommendation of no prison time is not unreasonable. Hi, Preet, this is Ray from Indianapolis. Uh, This morning, Rudy Giuliani told CNN that Paul Manafort's defense team has been updating the president's legal team on the Mueller probe. I understand that joint defense agreements are common when defendants share a common interest, but Manafort was a cooperating witness who had pleaded guilty, not a defendant. Have you ever heard of an arrangement like this where a cooperating witness was sharing inside information with the subject of an investigation? It seems somewhere between unethical and illegal, but Rudy's nonchalantly admitting to it to CNN. Thanks for clearing up any uh, confusion. Ray, that's a great question, and one that lots of people have been asking and scratching their heads over. Just by way of background, as people understand, there's a sacrosanct thing called the attorney-client privilege, and everyone gets that, and I think, based on watching television, even if you haven't been to law school, you understand how that works. There's also something called a joint defense agreement, which also makes sense if you think about it. So let's say prosecutors uh, investigate or prosecute, you know, five people at a company that are engaged in a fraud. And at the time, they're alleged to all have worked together in the same conspiracy and had access to the same documents and had the same fiduciary obligations or whatnot. They all have aligned interests because they're all interested in defending themselves against the government's prosecution. And it seems reasonable uh, to allow them in a privileged way to share information between and among each other. But it's also understood by all the parties, including the other people at the company and the prosecutor's office, that if at such time, one member of that group of five, in my hypothetical, decides to cooperate with the government, presumably to testify against the other four and help the prosecutors put the other four in prison, then that cooperating witness no longer is aligned (laughs) with the other four. In fact, they're complete adversaries. They're completely against each other. And so the, the idea that they would have a continuing... Joint defense agreement doesn't make any sense on its face. And so to answer one part of your question most directly, have I ever heard of a circumstance in which a cooperating witness with the government was providing information about that cooperation and about the strategies and interests and questions of the government to someone against whom he might be cooperating? The answer is I've never heard of that in any legitimate circumstance. It doesn't make any sense. And if Paul Manafort was giving information that could have been incriminating with respect to Trump and against Trump's interests, Then those communications between Paul Manafort and his lawyers, on the one hand, and Donald Trump and his lawyers, Rudy Giuliani or anyone else, on the other hand, cannot be covered by any joint defense agreement, cannot be covered by any privilege, and can be asked about. Now, what's interesting in part about all this, and we don't know all the details yet, is that Paul Manafort's cooperation with the government crashed and burned. They did what we metaphorically refer to as rip up the cooperation agreement. They described it, the special counsel's office, as a result of constant lies by Paul Manafort. And I wonder if one of the issues was in fact this, not just that he was lying about particular things in connection with proffer sessions he must have been having with the special counsel's office, but also was back-channeling information to, to the president's lawyers, which by the way, on its own, you know, when I was the United States attorney, would have been sufficient by itself to show the person the door and say, no, no more cooperating with you. So w- what's going to happen? Well, presumably the special counsel's office will try in some fashion to find out what kind of information was given to the Trump lawyers, but that's no easy task. To the extent they tried to find this out from Paul Manafort, he probably was lying to them. Uh, to the extent they want to find that out from the Trump folks, they're not answering those questions and probably will refuse. You know, Mueller's office could actually take Kevin Downing, who's the lawyer to Paul Manafort, subpoena him, put him in the grand jury, do the same with the Trump lawyer, because I don't see any argument for protecting the communications in this circumstance between the Manafort people, and the Trump people. I'd also be interested in seeing uh, what the joint defense agreement actually says. I mean, I guess it's not absolutely required, but generally speaking, people reduce these things to writing. So in the example that I mentioned, the five folks at the company, their lawyers would actually execute an agreement, or all the lawyers would sign them, uh, saying exactly what the terms of the joint defense agreement are, and making it clear that if any party finds out that his or her interests are no longer aligned with the rest, that they must withdraw. Does it rise to the level of obstruction on the Manafort side? I mean, it may. I think it depends on what the other circumstances were. It depends on what the intent was. I think it's very difficult for someone like Manafort and Kevin Downing, who, you know, is a well-known lawyer and was in the Justice Department for a long period of time, that he could claim that he didn't understand uh, Donald Trump's team would be able to change their testimony and figure out ways to, you know, undermine the Mueller investigation by getting this inside information. So that could happen. Maybe there'll be a fight about it. Maybe there won't. Um, And then on the other hand, you know, is there evidence that, that this was done in a way that would cause the Trump folks to be liable for witness tampering? Again, that's often a difficult thing to prove. There are lots of other things that Trump has done, including sending public tweets about Roger Stone and how lovely it is that he was strong and stood up, basically, you know, telegraphing the possibility of a pardon. All of those things, to my mind, get sort of to the edge of witness tampering. But to prove a particular violation of a particular statute and all the elements, whether it's obstruction or witness tampering, to me, requires knowing a little bit more about the details, a little bit more about corroboration, a little bit more about what what's in people's minds and what their intentions were. But to use a non-legal term, the whole thing stinks. Stay Tuned is supported by WordPress. WordPress powers some of the web's top sites from your favorite local shops to the world's biggest companies. When you build your website and your business on wordpress.com, you join a global, high-traffic network of organizations and entrepreneurs. With WordPress, you can claim your own corner of the web with a new custom domain name, or use one that you already own. Create a site that fits you with beautiful templates and customizable themes. No design experience needed, lucky for me. It's easy to import and export content to and from your WordPress site. And WordPress offers a range of e-commerce options to promote and sell, from an easy-to-use payment button to a full-fledged online store. Maybe you want to sell a t-shirt with a snappy slogan. I read your tweets, and I know that you all have some deeply held beliefs you want to share. Go for it with WordPress. WordPress makes it easy to reach a global market. Built-in SEO makes your site search-friendly and ready for the world. You can get your website up and running for just $4 a month. The time to grow your business is now. Build your website today and get 15% off any new plan purchase at wordpress.com slash Preet. That's wordpress.com slash Preet for 15% off your brand new website. wordpress.com slash Preet. When you think of the perfect gift, you probably don't think of an electric toothbrush. But the Quip electric toothbrush is one of the most gift-guided gifts of the season, and here's why. Quip is perfect for everyone with a mouth, and it's something they'll use twice every day, I guess gift-guided is a verb now. 2018. What a year. So I have a Quip, and it's pretty awesome. It has a built-in timer that pulses to remind you to switch sides, and the sonic vibrations are gentle enough for sensitive gums. Holiday travel is easy with Quip, thanks to its multi-use cover. It mounts to a mirror and unmounts to slide over the bristles for on-the-go brushing. The rest of my family wants a Quip, too. But since they listen to this pod, no spoilers on the wish list. Quip has over 5,000 verified five-star reviews. And while it looks like a big-ticket tech gift, it has a stocking stuffer price, starting at just $25. If you go to getquip.com preet right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. But you don't have to tell that to your giftee. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com preet. Before we get to my conversation with Kamel, I want to remind you to check out this new thing we're doing, Cafe Insider. Members get access to the new Cafe Insider pod. It's co-hosted by Ann Milgram, my good friend, and maybe more relevantly, the former Attorney General of New Jersey. That pod drops every Monday. Members will also get a weekly newsletter and more. To sign up, go to cafe.com/slash-insider. And folks, just one more thing. You know, the live show was in L.A. It was late in the evening. And so Kamal, you know, cursed a little bit. So just a heads up in case you're listening to the podcast with kids around. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. We're in Los Angeles. I love being cheered for knowing what city I'm in. You're you're an easy crowd to please. Um, I feel bad for the uh, 45,000 people who are still outside. Uh, But by my count, I think we have 1.2 million in the theater. So we're at the Wilshire uh, Evil Theater, which is a famous theater. No offense to the theater people, but the the one, uh, depending on your preferences, the one deficiency is there's no alcohol, there's no bar. So I understand some people have been upset about that, and I just want to apologize to you. I was told that one uh, audience member before the show actually became fairly belligerent and was upset that there was no alcohol, banged his fist on the table, uh, began yelling, uh, then started crying. A manager had to come over and say, look, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, You, you really need to get a grip. <laughs> We're gonna bring out Kumail Nanjiani in a few minutes, but um, you know it's kind of an advancement towards world peace that Kumail and I will be on stage together. Kumail is from Pakistan and I am from India. And they're not supposed to like each other, or at least that's what my father said <laughs> years ago. Kumail comes from Pakistan, but so does my father-in-law. And both of my parents were born before partition in what is now Pakistan, in Rawalpindi, and came over to the Indian side. My father-in-law was born on the Indian side. And after partition, gave up all his belongings, just like my parents did on the other side of the border, uh, and moved to Pakistan. My mother-in-law, meanwhile, uh, halfway across the globe, her family was in Germany uh, during the Nazi period, And my mother-in-law's family is Jewish and her father wasn't allowed to practice law at some point. And so they moved out of Germany to go to what was then Palestine, which is where my mother-in-law was born. So every member of the grandparent group in my family was born somewhere, had to move for reasons of politics and hatred and animosity about various religions. But now we all live in America. And the great thing about that is those kinds of antipathies should be less And so my family has a very diverse uh, background, at least with respect to faith. So I have three kids, and my three kids have one Hindu grandparent, one Sikh grandparent, one Muslim grandparent, and one Jewish grandparent. Which means, if I'm doing the math correctly, makes them Episcopalian. (laughs) So Kumail Nanjiani... Has, has really made a name for himself. He's an extraordinary actor and writer, uh, gifted performer. As I mentioned, he's Pakistani-American. He came to the U.S. at the age of 18, grew up in Karachi. Uh, he has been the longtime uh, a member of the cast of Silicon Valley. He plays Dinesh. He's a director. He is an Oscar-nominated screenwriter for the movie that he wrote with his wife, Emily. The Big Sick which is terrific. I think we're going to see a lot more from Kumail Nanjiani. Hi. Hey, how's it going? So I was telling you backstage before we came out that it was really fun to prepare for this interview because, you know, sometimes... I have a guest on the podcast, and they've like written books which you have to read <laughs> to prepare for this. I got to, basically, my wife was upstairs. I'm in the little office I have in the basement laughing hysterically because I'm watching all your clips. So thank you for making oh, this an easy you. prep.
1: Thank you. Yeah, no, I promise you I will never write a book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Somebody should to. have
0: told me how hard that was a year and a
1: half ago. It's hard, right? You it's very, very hard. I give up. On books, I'm like, I've, I trust that it ends. <laughs> I can write a lot of words, but having them make sense one after the other for like an extended period of time, uh, that's a challenge.
0: So I was going to start with a joke. Uh, my, the first live show I did was, was with Asai Menage, and I began my interview with him by congratulating him on his excellent new movie, The Big Sick, and then I was going to start with you and congratulate you on your new Netflix show, Patriot Act. <laughs> then I, but then I read, that kind of pisses you off when you get confused with other sort of South Asian comedians and actors.
1: No, but if it's coming from a South Asian person, that's fine. Oh, so I could have... <laughs> if, you were, if you were a white guy telling me I'm great on Big Bang Theory, I'd be <laughs> fucking angry. <laughs> this happens to me, there's always, I was just thinking about this, there's that moment of dread when someone comes up to you and is like, hey, I'm such a fan, you're so good on, and there's always for me a moment of dread where I'm like, they're going to say the wrong thing, and then it's going to be my job to make them not feel horrible about it. And two years ago, I made the decision that I wasn't going to take on that awkwardness. I was just going to be like, for instance, there was a famous actor who came up to me and I, and I was like, hey, I'm a big fan of yours. He's like, oh yeah, we worked together. I did Big Bang Theory. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's not me. That's the other one. That's what I always say now. That's the other one. And then he felt really awful and I was like, it's not my job to make you feel better about this. Remember how this feels and then fix, fix your shit. <laughs>
0: So you were born in Pakistan. Correct. That has been established. hmm And then you moved from Pakistan at age 18 to Iowa. Were you, were you planning to run for the presidency? Did, was it before well,
1: the caucuses? I, well, I knew that not being born in America... You, you have to be either born in America or Kenya to be president. <laughs> Otherwise, you can't be president. Um, I went to Iowa because... I didn't know how big America was and how many different places there are here. <laughs> it's not all like L.A. Well, that's the thing. I'd only known America from movies, so it's New York or L.A. When I landed in Iowa, I was like, "This." I, I, see, I hadn't seen Field of Dreams, so I didn't know, <laughs> didn't know the one movie that would have prepped me for that.
0: So you went to co- so I find this fascinating about your resume. So you go to college in Iowa. And your father was a doctor. Is, yeah. Is a doctor. And you major in computer science, awesome for them, and philosophy. And I kind of think it's like if I – so my dad's a doctor, deeply disappointed that I didn't go to medical school, like my brother didn't go to medical school, was briefly rejoicing that I had a huge position, and now once again is like his son is a podcaster – So the deep disappointment has returned.
1: You took the longest route to podcasting. (laughs) I know. Most people will just do a couple open mics and get right into it. It's me and Bill (laughs) O'Reilly.
0: Different route he took, just for the record. Um, But I feel like it's kind of like if I had decided to kind of please my parents and then do my own thing. And like, Dad, hey, I'm majoring in biochem and interpretive dance. Like how that would have been received in my house, was there any thinking about what your parents' views might be in deciding how you planned your career and your education?
1: In t- taking computer science? For sure, yeah. I mean, I didn't really... F- ob- obviously, my parents weren't like, oh, hopefully our son grows up to be a philosophy major from a liberal arts school, you know? Mm-hmm. That was not the path that they wanted for their son. But it really was, you know, so this was like... I was in college in the you know, late 90s, early 2000s and that was when the tech boom was, and I literally, my last couple years of college is when the the first tech bubble burst Um, and I'd taken computer science hoping that I'd be able to get a job here and get a visa here and all that so that was definitely the practical choice, and then I chose philosophy because that's what I really really enjoyed reading and talking about, and they're actually not that different So You did stand-up, you also began to act,
0: and one of the challenges you have is that you're not run-of-the-mill white guy. What? So there are...
1: (laughs) Oh, no. There are, This explains
0: so much. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to make a decision about working, on the one hand, and work is hard, I'm told, in this town, and also taking roles that you believed in, and I read that you somewhere once said that you made a decision which is a noble and great decision but you know seems to be uh, you know not so easy a decision to make if you're just starting out that you would never take roles that were caricatures of a Pakistani man or a Muslim man how hard was that to stick with
1: yeah well i decided that i would never like do the i i did so many auditions where they would want me to do the accent you know like there would be like hey could you do it but could you do it a little more you know funnier um and i knew what they were saying they and it's all i mean harry's talked about this a lot but it's all based on the apu accent which is a white guy doing a brown guy <laughs> it really fucked us for so long <laughs> um and 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 i is just is it okay if i do it like if, if a brown guy does it yeah okay? we okay. could okay. do oh, whatever just... we want okay We're at the bottom of the totem pole right now. We can make fun of every race. Try. (laughs) And and I did that, and, and I made that decision pretty early on, actually. I've only done one thing where I did play up my accent, and it was one of the first things I ever did. And I just felt so bad. And my parents also... And my parents have been, you know... We talked about them a little bit. They've been ultimately very, very supportive, and they always sort of trusted me enough to do... They just trusted that I would make the right decisions, even if they didn't agree with them. And they did say that they didn't agree with them, but they also said that they trusted me. And so there was one... The, one of the first jobs I got was me. I, I played up my accent, and I've only done it that one time, and my parents didn't say it, but I could tell that they were a little disappointed at that. And... And and I think right after that, I decided I wasn't going to do that. It wasn't a noble thing. I just was like, it just made me feel bad. It it wasn't that I thought that it would be bad for our people or representation or diversity or anything. It just made me feel bad to do it. So I decided I wouldn't do it. You one time, speaking of being confused for other people,
0: maybe more than once, uh, were asked the question, you know, hey, Kumar, where's Harold? Harold. Yes. And it struck me because this might come as a surprise to you, because I'm not in that world. When I was a line assistant, you know, a a career prosecutor when I was young, I did a lot of cases with a friend of mine, uh, organized crime cases on the ninth floor in the office in Manhattan, who was Korean American. And there was literally an agent from a federal law enforcement agency who called us Harold and Kumar and then later, I became the U.S. attorney, and then June, my friend, became the deputy U.S. attorney, so I was like, ha-ha, last lats on you. <laughs> but it's kind of, I don't think the person meant an insult by it. What do you think of people who come up to you and say things like, hey, Kumar, where's Harold?
1: Well, it sort of depends on the intent. First of all, I don't think it's ever really right for someone. If, if someone came up to me, even if I thought they were making a joke, and they were like... Hey, Kumar, where's Harold? You can do it. But I would, and the lights are low, but I would imagine most of these people can't do it. Um, (laughs) Yep, story checks out. (laughs) Um, I feel like not all of it comes from bad intent, right? I think a lot of it comes from trying to connect with the person, or trying to find some, some degree of common ground. I think we all sort of make judgments on people based on how they look. Snap judgments, right? And I think race is a big way that people make those decisions too. And I think people who look like you and me have not really been a big part of American popular culture for that long. At least not a, not a big positive part of it the intent isn't always bad, but I do think the result almost always is bad, which is that you're uh, sort of reducing people to their race even if you don't intend to. For me, you know, the hard thing about racism for me has been I'm I'm a very well-adjusted adult, I'm successful, I'm very happy, but when someone is racist to me, it does make me feel bad, and I understand intellectually that it's their fault, the problem is with them, I haven't done anything wrong, but it does make me feel bad. It does make me feel flattened, and it makes me feel like there isn't that much to me. Um, mm-hmm. but you sort of, you have this, you don't have this little fantasy about how you will respond to racists? Well, I'm, I've now, I always have a sentence that it's kind of the only point in my life where I have something that I, that I, I know to uh, sort of go to. Do you have Should something? we test it? Yeah. <laughs> Say something <laughs> racist. Say something to racist. Me. <laughs> Go ahead, and you, And first state your name. You get a pass right now. Yeah, what's your first and last name and your home address? Go. And then, yeah.
0: Yeah, we talked about Harold and Kumar. I had this weird experience, and maybe it doesn't make sense, but in, in thinking about you and listening to you, I realized that other people have had the same experience. There are not that many South Asians, not that many Asian Americans generally, who are in film who you see on the screen, and you see people who are not like you, and you sort of get used to it. You know, I grew up watching you know, Happy Days and other shows. and there, I, You never saw anybody like me, and it, when you did, it was a caricature, right? It was like Apu from The Simpsons, or it was Jawaharlal Harlal from Go to the Head of the Class, and it was always some, either like a, a cab driver, which is you know a stereotype. Uh, the only good one is Dupinder in Deadpool. Controversial statement. Come out of By me. the way, it's people okay. have
1: come up to me and told me I was great in Deadpool. <laughs> I swear to God.
0: So it's either, it's either you run a 7 Eleven or you're a cab driver or you're a doctor. And when Harold and Kumar came out, yeah. to me that was a watershed. Oh, and I watched huge. it. So Cal Penn plays a guy who huge. basically is a pothead. I had never seen an Indian American, South Asian actor talk like that and be kind of cool like that and be kind of like bad like that, I really thought that was a big deal.
1: Oh, I thought Harold and Kumar was a huge deal. I've never actually met Cal, but we've corresponded online and I've told him. I I, I really think that him playing like sort of a stoner, um, slacker guy was huge for us because that was so different from any of the stereotypes. And, And he actually, the reason I responded to him was that he said that somebody told him that he was really good on Silicon Valley. That's how we got (laughs) in touch. The other thing that's great is, is that I've become friends with John Cho. And so now I really want someone to be like, hey, Kumar, where's Harold? So I can be like, he's right there. there. (laughs) Because one one thing I want to say. The one thing that I have noticed in the last few years that I really want to fight is the tyranny of the the positive portrayal, you know. I feel like there's some people think that diversity means representing a group of people in a positive light, and I think that that's reductive. I think my job is not to present people, is not to present brown people as good people. I think my job is to represent brown people as people, as complex, real people. (laughs) With, With all the problems... And, and lack of problems that white people have, you know? I, uh, it's not my job to portray uh, people as being good necessarily or bad necessarily. It's just as being people. I think that's the biggest victory.
0: So, The Big Sick, I said it once, I'll say it again. Unbelievable movie.
1: Oh, thank to you. Be very proud of it.
0: <clears throat> one, of, one of the themes in the, in the film, because it's based on truth of your relationship. Uh, with your wife, how you met your wife, Emily, and the relationship with her parents and her illness. And it's, it's very both funny, moving, smart, thoughtful, unexpected. One of the themes of, of any immigrant's life, including yours and mine, is how you maintain sort of some identity of where you're from, whether it's the language or the music or the food or the religion. And on the other hand, becoming American. And a lot of those themes, and people talk about that in their right essays, you know, you do it in the film in a way that's accessible and relatable, which I think helps a lot of people to understand that predicament. How do you think about it in your life? Having, you know, I came to the country when I was a year old, you know, but I have sort of old-fashioned, you know, and very connected to India parents, which is wonderful. So for you coming here at 18 and having a whole life of being brought up in Pakistan, how do you think about... What you keep and what you don't keep?
1: You know, what I think about a lot is I, my identity, right? Like, what group do I belong to? And I don't feel fully American because a big part of your membership in a group is based on the other members of the group thinking you belong in that group. And I think that there's a big chunk of America that doesn't see me as American. And similarly, I think there's a big chunk of Pakistan that doesn't see me as Pakistani. You know, the project is to forge an identity that combines the right things from both those places, but there's, no, there's nobody to look to for me, you know. There's nobody I can look at and be like, well, oh, that was a Pakistani-American person who figured out themselves, and they have an identity that's, that's very definable. Have you heard from people, from fans, that you were like that for other people? Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> people have come up to me and said that, but... To, thing is i don't i don't really have any answers if anybody has answers <laughs> uh, dm me uh. there, there's some institutions though that are there that uh, one i want to talk about because it's just it's fascinating to me
0: because i grew up with it in my home your parents had i presume an arranged marriage yes my parents had an arranged marriage everyone in my family of the you know older generation had an arranged marriage i don't know if people understand many of you like what what that means it's the way Hasan Minhaj describes it, I think, is basically like it's it's Tinder for South Asian people, and you your parents swipe for you. <laughs> and it was always expected. So my parents, obviously, they they undertook a great enterprise. They left. My dad left India when he was a relatively young man, you know, 29 years old. Didn't know anyone in America, but he kept expecting that we would all grow up and be a particular way, yeah. right? That we wouldn't eat beef, and we would be religious in a particular way. And we would have arranged marriages. Um, you know, the, the famous phrase that we would all discuss when we were young in sort of the Indian-American community was how strict they were and you, know, you could never date. And, and one time, one of the aunties said, sort of misspeaking in a way, there, there, no dating until after you're married. <laughs> like, That's a all, great line.
1: She, she misspoke a little... I, I remember once... She's like the Yogi bear of the South Asian community.
0: <laughs> I remember once being with, my, with an uncle of mine when I was a teenager who was going to India to get married. And he was a real estate agent, and one of his colleagues was in the car, and my uncle was saying, you know, I'm leaving for, for India on the weekend. I'm going to get married. He's like, oh, great, where are you getting married? He's like, outside of Delhi. He said, what's her name? And my uncle said, I don't know yet. <laughs> That's not that abnormal a story.
1: No. Sometimes you, have, you know what the menu is, but not who the person you're marrying is. <laughs> I, I feel like here, obviously that sounds very unusual, and it's not unusual where we're from, but to me, it's not so much crazier than knowing someone and being like, all right, let's spend the rest of our life together, you know? And that's what I did. I'd known Emily slightly over a year, and I was like let 's do this let's spend the rest of our lives together. I really love you and need a green card. Uh, <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm just being serious. Uh, but, but to me it's not so crazy, you know I mean, I think all of this is uh, it's, all of this is crazy we're just trying to sort of create meaning, you know you know, there was a sun that supernovaed, and some particle stayed somewhere and then gases, like, revolved around it and then it made the earth and now here you are doing a fucking podcast, you know? Like, all of this is <laughs> a miracle. Gotta, uh, let's like all that. do the best we can. What was it like when you
0: became a citizen?
1: It was very exciting. It was a very exciting day. Um, I've thought about this. I, I became a citizen, I think, uh, it was like 2011, 2012, so I got to, I, I got to vote for that election, 2012. Election, My guy lost, but still, you know, <laughs> worked out okay. No, I did vote for Obama. Um, and it was really, it was at the L.A. Convention Center, and there were like 6,000 people. Obama comes on and welcomes you to being an American. Uh, and I've thought that now. It's got to be, it's not Obama anymore. It's got to be individual one, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Also also known as President T. <laughs> I don't want to I don't like saying that P word. <laughs> that guy. Individual 1.
0: So you talk about politics, but you are a comedian and an actor. It's so like what do you say to people because I think it's great. What do you say to people when they say
1: stay in your lane? Why are you talking about this stuff? This is what's crazy to me is that Politics is something that truly affects all of us. It's That's the one thing that we all get to have an opinion on. The day that I get, like, a fucking palace floating in the clouds, you know what? That day, I'll stay in my lane. I won't talk about what's happening on planet Earth, because it doesn't affect me anymore. But until that day, it affects me. It affects my parents. There's no... This is our lane. I mean...
0: You're not going to get invited to be on the Laura Ingram show anytime soon. That's fine. <laughs> do you know her? I do not. I mean, personally, no.
1: Okay. You just know her, unquote. I know, I know of. Yeah, I know of, of too. I, I, it's... You are more
0: outspoken than a lot of folks. You're on Twitter a bunch. I follow you. You should
1: follow Kamel if you don't already. You, you say a lot of things. How come? Oh, my God. I think it was because I decided, it was a long time ago, I was like, oh, Twitter is just going to be, you know, my work is my work, and I put a lot of thought and work into it, and intentionality, and I was like, Twitter is the fun thing that I can have, that I could just say whatever's on my mind. (laughs) And it sort of became that what's been on my mind the last couple of years has been this stuff. And Does
0: anyone ever tell you, my dad from time to time, Bringing my dad again. Well, sometimes just text me in the morning. You need to stop.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, funny enough, uh, the person who texts me the most to stop tweeting is your dad. <laughs> <laughs> and he got me to shave my beard too. <laughs>
0: I did have a beard until a couple of days ago. You'd look good in a. You'd look very good in a beard. Thank you. you okay, um, so you you said a th- Here's what you said on a tweet, right? So tw- Twitter is supposed to be kind of fun, maybe snarky, maybe you know, you post a photo of your cat. You once tweeted this in the summer, quote, a lot of levity in this tweet. I have always believed that there is no inherent sense of right and wrong within people, that morality comes from a just society. An unjust society leads to immoral people. It's how mass atrocities happen. What is happening in this country right now makes me believe this more you, I, what did you mean by that? What,
1: what I mean is I think, and this is a controversial position, I, I want to say I'm a very, very... People who know me know me as a very optimistic, happy person. I'm a, I'm a very positive person, but part of how I see the world, I do think that human beings don't have an inherent sense of goodness in them. I, I really... We're animals like everything else. I, I don't think that we're born with any innate sense of morality. I think a sense of right and wrong comes from our shared relationships with other people. But that is not... Um, I don't think of it as like sort of any kind of anarchic thought or anything. I think it's beautiful. I think we've created this meaning in morality, and we've created community. And just because we've created it doesn't mean that it doesn't have value, that it doesn't have meaning. I think that's the most important thing. I think people will you know, sometimes ask, like, if, you're, if someone's not religious, how do you have a sense of goodness? It's like, well, I get a sense of goodness from the people around me, and I think that that's wonderful. We all, in some ways, create our own meaning, and just because we created ourselves doesn't mean it's not the most important thing in the world. So you talk about community, and we talked a little bit
0: about being an immigrant. There's a lot of anti-immigrant feeling in the country, and some people like to say it's anti-illegal immigrant, and you and I both know there's an anti-immigrant feeling, and certain kinds of immigrants, say if you're not from Norway, on the part of some folks whose names I won't mention, Stephen Miller. And so you communicate with people, you bring people together, you act, you talk, you make people laugh, and you're an immigrant yourself, and you face these things. What is your thought on how you can create a community in which there are people who are not like you, understand that you actually are like them in the most fundamental important ways?
1: I think um, ultimately, and I don't know if this answers your question, but I thought about this a lot the last couple of years, I think ultimately saying directly to people, I am a human being with value, or these immigrants are human beings with value, I think ultimately it doesn't really work. I think if I talk to someone who is... Um, anti-Syrian you know, immigrants, right? There's nothing I can say to them. I learned there's no picture I can show them. That was to me the, a real wake-up call was when people can see pictures of refugees and not see themselves in them. I think that that's really truly this kind of no hope uh, in that approach. I think my job is not to talk to people directly and try and change their mind. I think my job is to try and do work that some people may watch and that they can come to that conclusion themselves. And I think that you know, making pop culture mainstream entertainment that can humanize all kinds of different people, I think that that's the approach that I want to at least try and take. Let's go through some issues that you care about and you've talked about. The media
0: and how this president uses the media. You once said something about Sarah Sanders at the intersection of free press and comedy. I think you said something like, we shouldn't be putting Sarah Sanders in these comedy sketches. Right. She should just fade into oblivion. Explain.
1: Yeah. Comedy's job is tricky because you could talk about something in a specific way and you can take it down, or you can talk about something in a different way and normalize it, make it seem okay. So if Sarah, Sarah Sanders, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who I think has done a lot of bad stuff, if we put her in a comedy sketch, and I was talking specifically about uh, who, was, who, was, who was Sarah Huckabee Sanders before? Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Uh, Sean Spicer. Oh, God. See? <laughs> he faded into oblivion in my head. I did it right. I I think that you know when Sean Spicer was in that comedy sketch, and I love Stephen Colbert. I'm a biggest fan of his. I I, I really think he's absolutely amazing. But I do think that that was a misstep. If we take these people who've done actual harm, and we present them in these goof, it's not people playing them. It's them themselves trying to humanize them. I mean, what was people are like? What was wrong with Fallon? you know, running his hands through Trump's hair. That's exactly what was wrong. It's not... Com- comedy's job is not to make these people feel normal. Your job is to be like, this is... C- crazy shit is happening. Yeah. You know, not to make them... So...
0: Yeah. So Okay, next, next subject. So you're in a show called Silicon Valley. Bill Gates... I think knows something about Silicon Valley once gave a compliment to your show and said, if you want to understand Silicon Valley, the place, watch Silicon Valley. And I don't know if this is a function of you're feeling some obligation to have an opinion on the culture of the place that's being depicted in the show, but you've been critical about the sort of the ethics and morality of tech companies and whether or not they're thinking about ethics in the way they should.
1: Where are we going? Oh, man, this is what's so fucking crazy about Silicon Valley (laughs) is that since we've been making movies, we've been making movies about AI and robots killing us, so many movies since the fucking 50s, and then later, you know, obviously The Matrix, but Terminator and all this, and still, we're still heading in that direction. It's crazy to me (laughs) that we've known for decades, oh, yeah, computers are going to destroy us anyway. This new one knows where your face is. (laughs) It listens to everything you say, but it's not going to do anything bad. It's so crazy. So, and and I, honestly, it's the opposite of what you said. It wasn't that I felt obliged to have an opinion on Silicon Valley because I was on a show about Silicon Valley. It was the opposite. I was like, oh, I'm on this show. My job is just to be on this show. This is not really an issue that I care about. The, The effect that technology has on our lives was not really something I thought about that much. But it was because, you know, because of the show, we would have these opportunities to go to these um, tech companies, big tech companies, and you go to these conventions and and uh, you just see the tech that people are working on and and the lack of any thought about ethics that goes into development of this tech. I think there's this whole thing in Silicon Valley where they think, like, Tech itself is not moral or immoral. It's the way people use it. But that's exactly what the gun companies say. Like, you're making stuff <laughs> knowing how it can be misused. Or not even, it is your job to think about it, right? Like, if you make something like Facebook, you can't say, well, we didn't think that fake news would be... that." If you make something, it is your job to think about it all the, the, the negative ways that it can be used, right? You're, you're obviously yeah. talking about the positive ways it can be used. C- it is your job to think about the consequences. Well,
0: maybe that's your calling. It occurs to me that maybe somebody who has had a, a double major in computer science and philosophy <laughs> is very well suited to reforming the tech industry. But look, you keep telling your jokes. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's... <laughs> That's just as important as
1: the, the death of society by robots and AI. My God, you sound <laughs> just like my dad. <laughs> you know what? I was, I, w- I was talking to my friend about this. We are the, the only generation that got to grow up uh, sort of without really technology in our lives to that extent, without the internet. And then we got to see the good parts of the internet and only the good parts, having our phones and all that stuff and having all this knowledge at your fingertips. And then we got to see it and now it's destroying us, right? So we really are, in a way, the one generation that got to see that whole arc happen. Yes.
0: <laughs> Very philosophical. <laughs> I,
1: want, I, want to, I want to
0: end with a couple of things that maybe are a little bit more philosophical also. That you said when you gave the commencement address at your alma mater at Grinnell in Iowa. And in one of the the things you said by way of advice to the graduating class in 2017, because we don't do enough of this, is quote, populate your life with people different from you. And then you further said this, which is not said so frequently. You said, understand the pain behind an opinion, such as our jobs are being stolen, and try to empathize with it. And then you also say, believe me, it is not easy. What did you mean by that and why is that important?
1: It's not easy. <laughs> what does anti-immigrant sentiment come from? It comes from... Suppose you're someone who can't find a job and you have a family and it's hard to find... Uh, it's hard to support your family and you feel that that's your duty to do that. And to some extent, obviously, it is. And then you're like, why can't I find a job? Why can't this happen? Whose fault is it? And then someone's there saying it's those people... In the caravan, those, those those kids in diapers who are getting gas. Yeah, it's their fault it's their fault, so you can sort of understand where that came from, right so that 's what I mean, even though it 's really hard is to try and try and see that all the negative sentiment does come from some some uh, ultimately some kind of relatable place, but so
0: do you think, based on something you said before, when people ask the question how do we make things better? Is it more through art or more through politics and government?
1: I think different people choose different paths. You know, you, you've sort of bridged that path. I think my my way to try and do it is entertainment, and I think some people's way to do it is through through politics and government. So I think you just sort of try and find the way that you think you can best serve the vision in your head, and you do that. It can be very hard, but maybe... I don't know maybe there's all sorts of different ways to uh, it all it's so <laughs> overwhelming. Can we end with just a very quick lightning round? I thought you were going like, to we be like can we end with just you saying it's all so overwhelming. <laughs> Good night everyone. <laughs> Drive safe. <laughs> it is overwhelming but I do believe I think I, I do, we're going to be okay.
0: I think so. I think all so. Right. Who, but you know who, I don't know. but I'm ve- know. I am very optimistic. I believe in optimism. I believe in idealism. I think America's great. I think America's always been great. And, and the fact, this may sound self-serving, but the fact that like 1,200 people came through the driving rain in Los Angeles <laughs> to, to see a couple of South Asian guys talk yeah. about stuff gives me great hope for America. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them don't have windshield wipers that they have used oh, in months true, or years. True
1: hardship. It's so. I thought it was so funny that you quoted me as saying, surround yourselves with people different from you, and here I am on stage with another <laughs> liberal brown guy. All right, who makes you laugh the most? I really do think the funniest person I know is Emily, my wife. She really That's is. Nice. She makes me laugh all the time. And it's not... Not me being sweet. That's just completely true. She just makes me laugh all the time, all the time, every day. What's your favorite Donald Trump lie? I liked one where he was like, when he was talking about coal, where he was like, this coal is going to be so clean. It's going to be so clean. You won't believe it. It's really clean. And I just want someone to be like, what does that mean? What do you mean, clean coal? Every day he says stuff that... I I have one. What's my favorite Trump lie? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Whichever one gets him impeached.
1: Do you think... I just wrote that just now. Like Do you Emily. really think he's going to get impeached? <laughs>
0: I think there's a decent chance that he'll get impeached, but people forget that doesn't mean convicted. I think the Senate right. will never convict him. I think almost against their will, given what's coming out with the Mueller investigation, Given what's happening with Manafort, given what's happening, will likely happen with Roger Stone, what's going to happen with Jerome Corsi, and his own idiotic need to lie publicly and perhaps in the written questions, that people like Jerry Nadler, who's going to take the gavel, they, they almost will have no choice but to proceed. I think, and I think, I think more than I ever have before, that it's going to be it's going to be bad for Trump and his folks. Oh wow! <laughs> All right, we got no, to finish up. Lightning round, lightning round. Go, 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 say, go. Say something nice to me in Urdu.
1: Oh. you um, hai. <laughs> I, I Can I translate that?
0: Your beard is very beautiful.
1: And I, And when I first saw you today, we've met earlier. You were thinking that? You were thinking that? I was like, oh, his beard looks great. <laughs> I swear that was the first thought That's not what my dad thought. No. Um,
0: If you could play any Trump character in the Trump administration, Manafort, Cohen, whoever, like, who would it be? If I could play any of them? Yeah, in a movie or, yeah.
1: Oh, my God. Okay. This is actually very exciting. I don't want to be Manafort. I think Cohen is very interesting because he's such a scumbag. I feel like now we kind of want to be like, oh, Cohen's a good guy. He's not. He's so bad. He's still real bad. Yeah hey, can I play you? I know you're not a, in that, but I guess if if it's a movie about Trump and I'm playing you, I just get fired in the beginning, so right I want somebody beginning. else. Uh, yeah.
0: It's like being the person of color in Star Trek. It's like, yeah. oh, we lost that guy.
1: Yeah. On the planet. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're blind, you're going to die. <laughs> That's a Jordy LaForge. I think, it's the wrong kind of These nerds. guys need to go get a drink.
0: So I have a couple of minutes to end with, but I, first, can we have a round of applause for our friend? Thank you. They like you very much. So I, I always end the podcast with, or mostly end the podcast with, something in the news that struck me, and I've been saving this for a couple of weeks, knowing that I was going to be here in L.A. And so a couple of weeks ago, a very, very famous, very influential screenwriter, and novelist passed away, William Goldman, whose breadth of work is stunning, amazing, over the course of decades. Uh, And you all know know, some of the biggest things that he did. He's responsible for The Princess Bride. He's responsible for, for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He's responsible for All the President's Men. He's responsible also, given that movie, for the phrase that people refer to prosecutors using all the time, Follow the money. The phrase follow the money, I don't know if you know this, was actually not in uh, the Woodward and Bernstein book, All the Presidents Men. That was inserted by William Goldman into the screenplay, and it's become common parlance in America. And, and every day you hear about that phrase. Um, so you might be wondering, like, well, why, why does that have any meaning for me? There's like two reasons uh, why Bill Goldman was meaningful to me. One is when I was a young associate at a law firm, you know, 20 years ago, I didn't like it very much although I liked the law, and I had this fleeting ambition that maybe I would write a screenplay. Some people, on their first try, they get nominated for an Academy Award. Um, I never made it very far, but but I bought a book by Bill Goldman called Adventures in the Screen Trade. It's one of the best books that I've ever read in any genre ever. So even though I never made it as a screenwriter, that book always stayed with me. And as I began to write my own book about justice and how justice is done based on some of my experiences, You might be surprised to learn that one of the books I used as my model and my inspiration in a completely different field, two books actually, one, Bill Goldman's book Adventures in the Screen Trade, and second, another book he wrote about how basically you tell stories called um, Which Lie Did I Tell? which is not in fact the title for the autobiography of Donald Trump. (laughs) It was a book he wrote about screenwriting and it's hard to do justice to it in a minute The reason those books were models for me is I think Bill Goldman uniquely among screenwriters of his generation or any generation understood, and it sort of goes to what we've been talking about, that you persuade people and explain to people about life, not just through statistics and data and argument or even philosophy, but through depictions of real people in ways that you can relate to that explain the universe and the world Really, persuasion happens through stories. And some of the things that I tried to achieve in in the book is how to tell the stories of how we went about making some of the cases we made. And so I literally, when I wanted inspiration to try to push forward and write another paragraph or another chapter of my book, I didn't pick up a law treatise. I didn't pick up a crime book. I picked up William Goldman's books because he's one of the greatest storytellers of our time. So William Goldman, rest in peace. God bless you, and I love you all. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. For more of my conversation with Kamel Nanjiani, go to cafe.com slash insider and become a member. We talk about his snappy comebacks to racist comments, the bravery of lame duck Republicans, and what he's working on next. To listen to that part of the interview, go to cafe.com slash insider and become a member. You can also access my Cafe Insider podcast, co-hosted by Ann Milgram, and more. That's cafe.com slash insider. Thanks again to my guest, Kumail Nanjiani, and the audience at the Wilshire Ebel Theater in Los Angeles. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669 247 Seven three three eight. That's six six nine two four preet Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. It's produced by Cat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at Cafe is Tamara Sepper. And the Cafe team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara.